as we think about the Easter egg hunt coming up, I couldn't help but thinking in the last, over the last month, month and a half or so, uh, we've been able to host a couple of uh, outreach basketball games here on Friday nights. And it's been an opportunity for us to be able to minister to uh, kids that are not just part of this community, but part of other communities as they come to play basketball. And with each occasion, each game that we've had, we've made sure that God's word has gone forth in their halftime. And it was a blessing to be able to hear that this past Friday, just two days ago, um, as part of one of the outreach games that we had, uh, a young man trusted in Christ as a Savior. And so praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for how he works and for his faithfulness. Uh, it's true that where God's word goes forth, it shall not return a void. Uh, it will accomplish what it is set to go and accomplish. So uh, I want to thank everyone for their prayers and for their efforts. And again, as we think about uh, the Easter egg hunt, it's always remarkable to see what God can do. And it, it should never surprise us, uh, but I think it does at some, at some, at some points. But God can do such incredible things. So just be praying that God would use us for his honor and for his glory to be a blessing to all the kids that are going to be here for the Easter egg hunt in a little over a month. As we turn our attention to the word of God here this morning, we come to our passage in 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 14 down through verse 21. 2 Kings 13, 14 through 21, in a sermon that I've titled, Faithful to the End. Faithful to the End. Uh, to, this is our last message that we're going to bring on the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. I haven't gone through and, and seen how many that we've looked at, but it's been a while that, that we've been looking at uh, the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, looking at the various miracles that God wrought through him, and seeing how a lot of those things that he went through parallel the life of the Christian today. And so today we put the bookend on the ministry of the prophet Elisha, and we look at how he was at the end. And I've titled my message again, Faithful to the End. Some scholars have tried figuring out how old Elisha was when he died. Uh, for what purpose? I really have no idea. Uh, is it important to know how long a person lived or to know that they were faithful to God up until the last moment of their lives? By the world standards, there are many people who do not live all that long. However, during that short life, they are used by God in truly some incredible ways. A lot of the books that I have in my office were written by men who didn't live to be all that old, but were faithful to God in the short time that they had here on earth. I'm, I'm less concerned with, for me personally, with the amount that I have to live here on earth, and I'm more concerned with being found faithful when my time comes to leave this earth. I don't have a death wish, trust me. I just know that Christ is the one who I'm going to be standing before one day, and I will give an account of all that I've done here on earth to him. So with that, I'm less concerned if I'm going to live to be 100 or if I'm going to live to be 45, but that I'm working and serving him with all those time that I have. I would prefer to be able to show Christ that I spent my time here on earth honoring him and glorifying him rather than living to be 100 years old, standing before Christ and being almost empty-handed. What are we doing for Christ? What are we doing for him? 
Are we going to be remembered for living a long life? Or are we going to be remembered for living a God-honoring life? I will say that it is possible to have both. You can have a long life, and you can have a, a God-honoring life as well. In fact, many people believe that Elisha lived quite a long life. Some believe that he was at least 30 years old when the prophet Elijah called him to come and follow in his footsteps. And if that's true, he spent at least 10 years ministering alongside the prophet Elijah. And then when you consider the many different kings who reigned over Israel during Elijah's ministry, who were outlived by the prophet, um, or who, who the prophet outlived, rather, uh, you would have to conclude that Elisha was an old man. And one commentator kind of did some math and figuring out and figured that Elisha probably lived to be somewhere around 120 years old. And either way, Elisha was an old man and he had lived a faithful life to God. Whether our lives are short or long, the one truth we must always be assured of is what the psalmist said in Psalm 31 and verse number 15. He said, My times are in thy hand. Our times are in the hand of the one who first gave us our being. There are many instances where God brings healing to individuals who didn't look like they were going to be healed. But there are also many instances where God brings deliverance by bringing his child home to be with him in heaven. And the point is that it would be well for us, whenever our time arrives to leave this earth, that we would conduct ourselves as Elisha did, and we would use our remaining strength for the glory of God. So as we look at some of the final acts and days of the prophet Elisha, I want you to notice first his last days. His last days. The final days of Elisha's life remain consistent with the pattern that we've seen throughout his life from the very beginning when he first started his ministry. This prophet did not have an ordinary life, for he was encountering one difficult and almost impossible situation after another. And his life, his life is marked by these numerous extraordinary situations. Why would we expect anything to be different for him in his last days? What we're going to see first is that Elisha, in his old age, had fallen sick. The fact that he's now an old man, again, as one commentator believes, probably around 120 years old. The fact that he's now an old man and, and now presumably on his deathbed doesn't deter those who need his help from still calling upon him. Now, some time has passed since the last time we saw him because the last time we looked at the prophet Elisha was in 2 Kings chapter 9, and now I'm having you turn to 2 Kings chapter 13. There's no mention of him. For about four chapters, there's no mention of him. That's not because he's not doing anything, but just the way that the Bible records it. So from chapter 9 to chapter 13, nothing is mentioned with regards to what he was doing. But as we'll see, I think he was still pretty active. Uh, where we last saw Elisha there in 2 Kings chapter 9, if you remember, he was sending a young prophet on his very first mission. A young prophet was sent to go and to anoint a man by the name of Jehu to be king over Israel. And that's what the young man did. And that's the last that we heard of Elisha until we're here now in 2 Kings chapter 13. And what we see is that several kings have come and gone in that time frame. Elisha ministered during the reigns of King Jehoram, King Jehu, King Jehoahaz, and Joash in the northern kingdom of Israel. There was not one single good king who sat upon the throne of Israel in the north. Even though these men may have been used by God in some different ways, 
They didn't depart from the sins of those before them, and they didn't follow after God. Uh, these are the people that Elisha was called to minister unto. So you can just imagine how challenging this ministry would have been if not a single one of these kings that he was ministering to ever followed after God. It's almost as if he's beating a dead horse. And for years and years and years, with four different kings, he's having to minister to these people who want nothing to do with God. But they'll come to him when their backs are up against a wall. When they're in trouble, they'll, they're willing to listen. They're willing to get some help from him. And even though Elisha was instrumental in orchestrating some of the events leading to kings getting to the throne, as we saw with Jehu back in chapter 9, unfortunately, he didn't have the relationship with these men uh, that he probably wanted to because they ultimately would ignore the counsel that he would bring from the, from the Lord. Nevertheless, when one of these kings again found himself in a position where he was needing some help, you better believe that he was calling upon the prophet to get that help. Isn't it interesting how that works? When life seems to be going okay, when everything seems to be all right, people want nothing to do with God or the man of God. But the moment something gets tough and the moment that life gets difficult, suddenly we need God's help and we need the man of God to be present, even if that man is sick. And as we're going to see here in chapter 13 of 2 Kings on his deathbed, now, we then notice that Elisha, even in his old and weakened condition, doesn't stop being a courageous and faithful servant of God. He didn't care who was standing before him. Elisha was always one to take charge of the situation that he was confronted with. And in this case, he would give orders to the king who would come to visit him and get help from him, which was really nothing new because he did this all the time with King Jehoram earlier on. He did this with Jehoram on multiple occasions. He did this with Naaman. You remember Naaman? Naaman was the captain of the host of the armies of Syria. A foreign man comes to him, but a man who was the captain of the armies of the world power during the day comes to Elijah's doorstep, or Elisha's doorstep, rather, seeking his help, and Elisha doesn't even so much as come out outside the house to meet him. He was the one taking charge. He would do this also with the king after Jehoram, a man by the name of Jehu, who he was instrumental in anointing and getting him to be on the throne. Elisha knew that he, in all of his ministry, was acting in capacity as the man of God. And it was by God's authority that he was able to do anything that he was able to do. Therefore, he never cowered in fear to any man or in any situation he was ever confronted with. And then we're going to see how God would honor the prophet one final time here in this chapter. One final time, even after he died, by raising to life one who had been cast into the sepulcher where Elisha had been buried. God would work a miracle through the bones of Elisha, which seems to be a fitting end to a faithful life spent serving the Lord that was marked by miracles every step of the way. It's really neat to see how the Lord works in the lives of those who are faithful to him, turning impossible situations into opportunities for God to show himself strong and to show himself capable, which is what we saw throughout the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Even though there is, again, a lengthy gap between 2 Kings 9 and 2 Kings chapter 13, where we last saw him, uh, we have every reason to believe that Elisha was still actively serving the Lord and ministering to the people that God had called him to minister to. The very fact that the silence is broken with him still called here in chapter 13, the man of God insists that he had remained faithful to God during those years where he was not mentioned in scripture. God hadn't cast him aside. He was still, in fact, using him and would continue to use him up until these very final moments here on earth. And notice what the Bible says in verse number 14 of 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13 and verse number 14. 
It says, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. So even though Elisha had the spirit of the prophet Elijah, who had gone before him, resting upon him, he wasn't fortunate enough to have the same departure from this earth that Elijah did. If you can remember back to 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elisha's ministry really took off on his own, it was the prophet Elijah, who he was walking in the footsteps of, who was carried into heaven with a chariot of fire and never experienced death. Elijah is one of two people in scripture that never experienced death. And here we read about the prophet Elisha, now in 2 Kings chapter 13, now as an old man with a sickness that is eventually going to take his life. From a body of work, Elisha did far more than the prophet Elijah. And yet, it was Elijah who was blessed with that incredible departure from earth, not Elisha. Elijah never became truly an old man in the sense that Elisha was an old man. He didn't get sick. He didn't you know, succumb to any sort of physical ailment. He was taken to heaven miraculously as God came and just swooped down and brought him to his presence. And so it's interesting because when you look at what Elisha has done, he's done more miracles. He was kind of around for a longer period of time. And with the body of work that he was able to do for the Lord, it's Elijah, not Elisha, who gets the, the really neat departure from Scripture. And this just goes to show that God can honor some above others, regardless of how much that they've done for him here in this life. God does as he pleases, and he doesn't have to explain why he does what he does. But God always does what is right. God can do this by virtue of being God, being the one who's in control over everything, uh, all parts of his creation. God doesn't have to answer to anyone. And he isn't locked into having to do the same thing with everyone the same way every time. On nearly every page of scripture, we read about God doing something to illustrate his sovereign authority over everything. And he has that by being the one who's created and spoken everything into existence. Listen to what we read about Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse number 7. Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, it says, And Moses was 120 years old when he died. And notice what it says about him. 120 years old, okay? None of us in this room are 120 years old. Moses was 120 years old when he died. And notice what it says of him. In that old age, it says, His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. He was 120 years old, and he looked like he was probably 25. He had the strength of a young man, is what he says, at 120 years old. And this is when he ended up dying. So from, from every optical sense, he looked like he probably had another 120 years to go. Because he wasn't walking with a cane. He wasn't struggling to, you know, with a walker to, to get around. He wasn't you know, not able to see anything. He was, his eyes were as sharp as ever. His body was as strength-filled and strength filled and, and eager and full of life as it had ever been. And yet, the Bible says he died when he was 120 with all of this. And then we read about Joshua. Joshua, who lived to be 10 years younger than Moses. He didn't leave, live to be 120, but he lived to be 110 years old. And notice what the Bible says of Joshua. So if Moses was 120 years old, his eyes did not dim, and none of the force of his physical body left him. Now we'd think that, you know, a man who lived to be 10 years younger would have had all that, right? But notice what it says about Joshua in, in Joshua 23, verse 1. 
It says, and it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about Joshua, round about it, that Joshua, it says, waxed old and stricken in age. He died when he was 110 years old, but it said of him that when you looked at him, he looked every bit 110. He waxed old, it says, and was stricken in age. He was slowing down significantly. Where Moses, if he was around at that time, would have been running circles around him as 10 years older than him. Moses was 120 years old when he died and essentially looked and moved like he was 25. And Joshua was 110 years old when he died and he looked like death, the Bible says. Now this had nothing to do with how much work that these men did for the Lord, but just goes to show that God preserves the faculties of some unto old age and not so with others. It's not a matter of how much work you've done and God's going to bless you with longer life or with healthier life the longer you go. And here in our passage, we see the same thing. Elisha is an old man and he looks like he's an old man. He's in a weakened state when the king comes to see him and ask him for help. Again, based on the fact that the king, who had not been on the throne all that long, knew exactly where to find the prophet, tells us that Elisha had still been faithfully serving the Lord even in his old age, even when the Bible is silent on what he's doing for about three or four chapters. And it also shows us that Elisha was obviously still held in a very high regard, even if he was old, because the king himself is the one coming to see him, not sending a messenger down to get an answer from him. Now, even though this was not a godly king, even though this king had failed to respond to all of God's teachings, he still valued the man of God enough to come seek him when he needed some help. What we didn't point out is that Israel's fortune had fallen to a very, very low point. Just a couple of chapters earlier, we read some really sad words regarding the northern kingdom of Israel. I want you to notice, if you want to just turn back a couple chapters to 2 Kings chapter 10, and notice what we read in verses 32 and 33. 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. It says here, 2 Kings 10, 32 and 33, it says, In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short, and Hazael smote them in all the coasts of Israel, from Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites from Arior, which is by the river Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. Hazael was the king of Syria, and he was really bringing the hammer down upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is how bad it was for Israel when the prophet Elisha was still present, when he was still active. Imagine how bad it would have been had he not been around. Now, we don't get to find that out because he was around. But God had revealed it to Elisha how much Syria would end up afflicting Israel under the reign of Hazael after he assassinated Ben-Hadad. And this is exactly what was happening. If you remember, Ben-Hadad was sick a few chapters earlier. A Syrian king finds out that the man of God, Elisha, is in his kingdom. And when he's sick, he sends his servant Hazael to go and to inquire of Elisha whether or not he's going to recover from the sickness. And if you remember what happened, Hazael comes, he finds out Elisha, and he says, listen, I'm come to find out whether or not my king is going to overcome the sickness that he has. He brings him all sorts of money and gifts, and 
Elisha says, yes, he's going to recover, but he's still going to die. And he weeps because he says, you're going to be the one to kill him. And not just that. He says, I know the wickedness and the violence that you're going to bring upon my people. And you remember what happened? Hazael, he said, Are you, am I a dog that you think so little of me that I would do this to my king and to your people? And the very next day, Hazael goes back, tells his king, Oh yes, the prophet said you are going to recover from this disease. Well, that is what he said. But that he would actually die from something else and he conveniently leaves that part out. Comes and kills him that night. Takes over the throne. And now we read about in 2 Kings chapter 10, what is Hazael doing as king over Syria? He is judging and bringing all sorts of wickedness and violence upon Israel just as God had spoken through the prophet Elisha. This is what was happening. God's word was coming true just as the prophet said it would happen. And again, imagine how bad things would be had the prophet not been there. Imagine how horrible it would be. But this is the circumstance that we find ourselves in. This is what's happening here. Joash, the present king of Israel, he was recognizing that Elisha is probably getting close to the end of his life, and he wants to meet with him to figure out if there is any hope for Israel going forward against Syria because they have just been beaten on every front every time Syria comes to attack. And notice again what it says there in verse number 14 of 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13, 14 again. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. While he visited him out of respect, I don't believe the tears that were shed here were out of affection for him. Rather, Joash feared that if Elisha should die, Israel would be doomed at the hands of Syria. Joash, the king here, was well aware of how many times God had used Elisha to defeat the armies of Syria. And he's smart enough to know that his only hope against Syria is if Elisha's God does something to help him out in this hour of need. Joash is selfishly motivated here in this visit to Elisha because he viewed Elisha as their last hope. And interestingly enough, I find this to be generally true. Whenever we face some sort of loss in our lives, we have a combination of esteem as well as, self, as well as selfishness that is behind, behind our tears. Part of us are sad for the loss and part of us are sad, I'm sorry, part of us are sad for the loss that we've had and some of us are, are sad for our own loss, how it affects us. There's, a, I think, a practical lesson for us as we consider what this visit of Joash looked like to Elisha and what we often feel in the same position. Someone has said it this way, let us seek to live that even ungodly men may miss us when we are gone. It is possible for us in a quiet, unobtrusive manner so to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things that when we die, many shall say, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. And men shall drop a tear and close the shutter and be silent and solemn for an hour or two when they hear that the servant of God is dead. They laughed at him while he lived but they weep for him when he dies. They could despise him while he was here, but now that he is gone, they say, we could have better missed a less known man, for he and such as he are the pillars of the commonwealth. They bring down showers of blessing upon us all. I would covet this earnestly, not for the honor and esteem of men, 
but for the honor and glory of God, that even the despisers of Christ may be compelled to see there is a dignity, a respect about the walk of an upright man. I think for so many reasons, people should miss us when we're gone. People should miss the fact that there is no longer a Christian in their midst. We should be impacting so many lives for Christ here in this life that many shall miss us when our lives come to an end. And we shouldn't be trying to be out there making a name for ourselves, and that's not what I'm saying. But we should be remembered for loving people enough to minister to them in the name of Christ and for the cause of Christ. When you look again at what we see here in verse 14, you'll notice that at the last part of this verse, Joash the king regards Elisha basically as the security force for the nation of Israel. Notice again what it says here. It says, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. This is not a God-fearing man himself. But Joash was at least able to acknowledge that there was no hope whatsoever for Israel outside of God and God's intervention. His best defense against Syria and any other enemy that would ever come up against him would be for the God of Israel, Elisha's God, to do something. And as we consider the evils that we see happening around us today on a daily basis, one thing we must realize is that prayer hasn't changed. He's asking God basically to pray to do something. Prayer hasn't changed today. God still uses the prayers of faithful believers to bring protection. And not just to individuals, but also to entire nations. For the most part, our lives, I think here living in America, haven't been all that bad. And I cannot imagine how bad it would have been without God's protection, shielding us from all sorts of horrors that have tried to come our way but have been prevented because God's had your protection were around us. We can easily lose sight of the fact that we are daily living under God's divine protection simply because we've come to expect it. We expect it to be there. We don't think that it's there. And we're almost living spoiled because of how well we're shielded from these outside influences that God is daily protecting us from. The Bible makes it clear that we daily receive God's mercies and God's compassions. We're told in Lamentations chapter 3 and verses 22 and 23, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, and as we just sung, great is thy faithfulness. God is daily protecting us. Whether we acknowledge it, whether we see it or not, God is daily protecting us. King Joash here in 2 Kings chapter 13 understood enough that God had previously protected Israel against the Syrians. And he was hoping that God had just a little more favor left for Israel before Elisha went on from this life. One thing we cannot miss is what the king said unto Elisha here at the end of this verse. For these are the exact same words that the prophet Elisha cried out to Elijah when Elijah was about to be carried away into heaven. He said the same thing. He said, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. 
King Joash repeating these words serves as really a final confirmation of Elisha's relationship to his predecessor, Elijah. If there had been any doubt as to whether Elisha had received a double portion of Elijah's spirit, this was the final confirmation of the truth. He was indeed in every way acting as the servant of God throughout his entire life and ministry. So we've seen his last days, but notice second, Elisha's last prophecy. Elisha's last prophecy. And here's where we take a look at what happened when Joash the king came to visit the prophet. We've already mentioned that Joash wept and acknowledged Elisha's position as a prophet of God. And what we'll see is that Elisha is not going to be flattered by any of this, but would continue to maintain professionalism up until the very end. Elisha knew that he was the representative of not just this king, but the king of kings. And so he conducted himself accordingly, which says a lot about someone when they're able to maintain faithfulness, when they're able to maintain a devotion to God, even when they're sick and on their own deathbed. How easy would it have been for any other ordinary person to be flattered by a visit from a king? And then the king shed tears in your presence. But this man of God would at once take charge of the situation and give orders to his earthly king, this man Joash. Now, I think we should be careful with this because it could easily be thought that we have every cause to ignore all of our superiors, which was not what was happening here in the case of Elisha. But Elisha was a special case seeing that he was occupying not any ordinary office, rather the extraordinary office of a prophet. And in his case, he was given some exceptional powers from God to do what we cannot. Nevertheless, I think as ministers of Christ today, we must conduct ourselves with respect and with dignity, much like what we're told to do in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 12, where the Apostle Paul told young Timothy, he said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. No matter the situation, there is a certain way that we as believers should be conducting ourselves we must be setting a proper example for the people that we're witnessing and ministering to. And notice what we see happening here in verse number 15. So the king comes to the prophet who's sick, who's on his deathbed, and basically asks him for help. What are you going to do, he says, for us as we're dealing with Syria coming and afflicting us? Verse 15, it says, And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. Now what would follow is basically a parable in action. When Elisha told Joash to take a bow and arrow, he was providing some visual aids for the message that he was about to deliver to him. Again, the king showed up and he cried in his presence, supposedly lamenting the fact that Elisha was dying. And some of Elisha's final words were to basically tell the king to stand fast and to be strong. He's essentially telling the king to assemble his forces and lead his army into battle against the enemy. It didn't matter that Elisha would be taken from this earth. He was letting Joash know that God was still alive and was still perfectly well and would not fail those who put their confidence in him. So get ready for battle is what he's saying. Grab a bow, grab an arrow, and prepare. Nonetheless, the king was still required to fulfill his responsibilities by making good use of the resources that he had. So Elisha says, God is going to fight for you, but you need to prepare for the fight nonetheless. Now, with this simple message, Elisha was informing King Joash that God was going to be using him as the instrument through, to bring deliverance to Israel through their military efforts, and that if he trusted in the Lord, and if he followed the prophet's instructions, 
God would grant him complete success. In other words, there was no need for the king to be fearful, to be distressed, because God was guaranteeing victory if he just simply obeyed. And notice what we read in verse number 16. So he t- tells him to take a bow and arrow. He does. And said in verse 16, it says, And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hand upon the king's hands. Once again, we see the commanding influence and the commanding authority that Elisha has with the king of Israel. The king is listening to. He's obeying all the instructions from the prophet as if he is the prophet's servant. This is the king coming to him, taking orders, taking instructions from one of his subjects. It's crazy to think how much the demeanor and the attitude of kings changed whenever they were around the prophet Elisha. It's not that Elisha disrespected the kings of Israel. It's just that these kings recognized the power and the presence of God in Elisha and they couldn't help but basically cower before him. Joash doesn't question Elisha at all. He doesn't object to anything that Elisha is telling him to do. He just goes along with everything. Take a bow and take some arrows. Okay, he does. Put your hand on the bow. Okay, he does all this. And there comes Elisha putting his hands on his hands. Elisha was showing Joash that he's still acting in capacity as God's prophet and he would make sure that Israel would be spared through God's intervention. Elisha putting his hands upon the king's hands was his way of telling the king, the battle is not yours, but it's God. God is going to use you to be his instrument to fight off the Syrians. A few years ago, I was teaching Lily how to play baseball. And she was having some trouble hitting the ball. And so we would place the baseball on a tee for her to hit off of it. And even then, she was having a little trouble still hitting the ball. So I came next to her, and I placed my hands over her hands. So she was gripping the bat, and I came, and I brought my hands over the top of her hands. And I was going to show her how to swing the bat and how to hit the baseball. She was going to be the instrument, but I was just going to be the one to guide her hands to the proper place. And this is what God is doing. This is the object lesson, the parable in action that Elisha is doing. He says, you're going to be the one to take the bow, to take the arrows. You're going to be the one to gather your military forces to go into battle, but God is going to be the one to direct it where it needs to go. Just like I was the one driving the arms to swing to where it needs to go to hit the ball. Elisha was telling them as long as he did what God was telling him to do, God would use him to defeat the Syrians. And notice what is, what is said in verse number 17. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he, shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the, Ar- the Syrians in Aphek till, they, till thou have consumed them. So Elisha continues to use this visual aid to describe how God would bring deliverance to Israel. It didn't matter that Elisha was nearing the end of his life. He was still evidencing how much he cared for the welfare welfare of Israel. Now, most people in his condition would probably just given up. Probably when the king came to him, he said, you know what? I'm retired. All right? Can't you see I'm on my deathbed? Would you just let me die in peace? We don't even like each other. Just let me be. Let an old man die in peace. He could have said this. 
But he cares so much about the welfare of his own people that he's talking to a wicked and ungodly king, giving him instructions as to how he can be successful in going against his enemy. This goes to show just how much he cared for him. Why did he continue to care so much about these people who clearly didn't care about him unless they needed something from him? It's all too convenient, right? Everything's going fine. They don't need the prophet. He's warning them, telling them about judgment that's coming. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Judgment finally comes. Now their back is up against the wall. Now it's, let's go to Elijah. Let's see what he has to say about this. To the point where he could have said, if you would have just listened to me in the first place, we could have avoided all of this. And now that we're in the mess, you're coming to me now? Were your ears not working earlier when I was telling you how to avoid this messy situation? Now you want my help? Now you're willing to listen? And you know what he does? He helps them. He still helps them. He doesn't say, there's the door. Let it hit you on the way out. He still helps them. He's on, literally, he's almost out the door. He's got one foot out the door of this earth. And now they're coming to him, and he's still helping them out. This just goes to show how faithful Elisha was to God to minister unto the house of Israel, even when Israel had made it clear that they didn't want God. Elisha wasn't called to minister to these people as long as they wanted it. He was called to minister to them as long as God had him there. And that's exactly what he did. Here he is, until the very end, doing everything in his power to ensure that Israel would be delivered from the hands of the enemy. Unfortunately, though, Joash wasn't seeing everything that Elisha was showing him. And notice what we read in verse number 18. Verse 18 says, And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. Elisha previously had Joash shoot one arrow out the window to signify that God would bring deliverance from Syria in a specific place. This time he instructed Joash to shoot arrows, plural. And Joash does, except he only shoots three. Because it says there at the end of verse number 18, it says he smote thrice and stayed. He stopped. Elisha here was testing the king's faith to see how much he truly believed God would do for him and for the nation of Israel. Elisha wanted him to shoot every arrow that he had, essentially yielding all of himself, using all of his resources, giving them all over to be used by God, but that's not what the king did here. He shot three arrows, and then he stops. And notice how Elisha responded in verse number 19. An old man on his deathbed. Verse 19 says, And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed them. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. So here again, we see how much Elisha cares about the welfare of Israel based on how he responds to Joash's lack of confidence in God. He tells Joash, smite the ground three times. And he goes, one, no, I'm sorry, he doesn't say three times. He says, shoot all your arrows out. And he shoots three times and he stops. And Elisha says, you should have wasted every single arrow. Used them all up. And you stop that three times. And this goes to show that Israel was such a burden on the man of God's heart. Because he tells him here, had you used every arrow that you had, 
God would have brought complete, complete deliverance by destroying Syria once and for all. But because you only shot three times, you're going to have three successful victories against Syria, but only three. And that's where it's going to stop. Elisha knew this would result in Israel defeating Syria only three times when they could have consumed them all together had Joash shot all of his arrows. And later on, at the end of verse number 25, we see, in fact, that this prophecy of Elisha would indeed come true, where Israel would defeat, defeat Syria only three times. There at the end of verse 25, it says, three times did Joash beat him and recovered the city of Israel. Three times. Sounds good, right? Well, could have been a lot more. Could have destroyed them all together. Three times, though, is what he got. In Matthew chapter 9 and verses 27 to 29, we read about Jesus encountering two blind men. Two blind men come up to him and listen to what happens here. For you'll see that the message that Jesus gave to these blind men is the same message that Elisha was trying to teach King Joash. Matthew 9, 27 to 29. It says, When Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. Those two blind men would go away able to see because they believed enough and the power of Christ to bring them their sight back. And he did just that. Immediately, they're opened. Elisha, here in 2 Kings 13, gave Joash basically the same opportunity. Shoot the arrows, he said. Shoot the arrows, and he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. If you give everything over to be used by God... God will not just guarantee one victory, two victory, three victories, but you'll utterly consume the Syrians. Be it unto you, he says, according to your faith. But Joash only shot three arrows. He assured him that God would bring deliverance to Israel. But how much deliverance depended upon how much faith Joash had in God's power and God's ability. So Joash shot three arrows, but held on to the rest because it was at that point where his heart stopped believing that God could do any more than what the prophet was insisting he could do. Now, I don't think we realize how much our own faith sells us short. There are so many blessings that we miss out on because we lack faith in the ability of God to do something in our lives. There are many things that we don't even bother asking for from God because we conclude that God would never grant us such things. Some things we ask of God we never get because even though we've asked, we haven't asked believing that God can actually do it. James tells us regarding having wisdom. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given you. Just because we're believers doesn't mean that we're going to have wisdom. You have to ask for it. And he says, the good thing is, if you truly and sincerely ask for it, God's going to give it to you in abundance. But if we don't have it, 
It's not because God hasn't given it to us when we wanted it. It's because we haven't asked for it. God's ready to bless all of his children, but not all of his children are asking for his blessings. And in many cases, when we do ask, we're not believing that he can do what we're asking him to do. We don't realize it, but our faith is put to the test every time that we go to God in prayer. And I fear far too many believers have been failing this test, just like Joash failed this test here in 2 Kings chapter 13, where we sell God short. And instead of firing all of our arrows and giving everything over to God, we hold on to a few, just in case. Well, what if God can't deliver and I need the rest of these to take care of myself? That's essentially what Joash was doing. You're telling me I'm going to go to battle? And now you're telling me to lose all my arrows? What am I supposed to fight with? This is what he didn't get. God was going to fight for him. Give up all your weapons, is what he's saying, and trust that the Heavenly Father, who you came to get help from, can actually help you. Fire all your arrows. Empty the quiver. Give it all up to him. Trust that he can do this, and he'll do it. But we hold on to a few, don't we? God, I'm willing to give you everything, almost everything if you just help me on the situation. But we don't give him everything, do we? We don't give our a complete confidence and our complete faith in him. We'll give him a little bit. We'll say all the right words, but what's happening in our heart is more turmoil because we're not willing to let go of everything and give it all to him. Joash shortchanged himself by only shooting three arrows, much like we shortchange ourselves by only believing that God can do some of what we ask him to do, not all of it. That's not to say that God will grant us everything that we ask for if we just believe enough. Rather, that there is much we miss out on from God because we don't believe in him enough. God is not going to give us what is outside of his will. But when we're praying the right way, which is according to God's will, having his mind be in us, Christ has promised, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Joash's faith in God, it stopped short. And as a result, the nation would suffer. Even though they would see three victorious campaigns against Syria, the nation would ultimately suffer. And notice what we see in the last two verses, 20 and 21. It says, And Elisha died, and they buried him, and the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha, and when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Nothing is mentioned regarding a funeral of, or some sort of burial service for the prophet Elisha. The final note we have of the prophet Elisha is the Lord miraculously working through the bones of the prophet. God honored the prophet Elijah by miraculously taking him to heaven in a chariot of fire. And Elisha here is honored but in a much different way. This final miracle was the Lord's way of kind of putting a seal upon the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. It served to indicate that the Lord was his God even after death, as much as he was his God during his life. Thus, from beginning to end, Elisha's life and ministry was marked by miracles. There are, I think, many lessons that we can learn from the example of Elisha. And I pray that as we've taken some time over the course of, I don't know, the last six, seven months or so, maybe even longer than that, to look at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, that we might value the importance of remaining faithful to God even until the very end. There are many situations and circumstances in life that we may not understand, at least here on this side. 
There are many mysteries in our faith of which we may not figure out, at least here. Nevertheless, there are significant works that God will work through us if we are but willing to be used by God and to give ourselves wholly over to be used by him. We who have a mind to the harvest, to the work that God has called us to, will be used by God to lead many to salvation. But if we decide to lack the faith in God's ability to work through us, we do more harm than good to the people that God has put in our lives. God has given all of us a tremendous responsibility to be a light for him in this dark world, to let people know that there's a Savior out there who loves them, to show them the pathway of salvation through his word. And I pray that whenever our time comes to an end here on this earth, that it may be said of us that we were faithful up until the end. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be able to be in your house today. We're thankful to learn from the example and the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Lord, truly up until his last days, and even with his last words, he was faithful to you. Had a burden for his people and the people that you called him to minister to. Lord, may the same be said of us. May we have such a burden. May we have such a desire, Lord, to tell people about you and to stand up for you. Lord, when others won't do the same. Give us the strength that we need to do what we know we should be doing in a world that is increasingly growing evil and turning away from you each day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.